those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and today we have an incredibly special guest on the show, Abby Martin, who, if you somehow do not know, is a badass journalist and activist who has been relentless in speaking truth to power. And she's one of my personal idols, actually, for just the courage and conviction that she brings to all of her work. If you've been following my work, you'll know that I absolutely adore the Media Roots podcast hosted by Abby and Robbie Martin, and also the Empire Files run by Abby and her partner, Mike Preisner, which is honestly essential watching for citizens of basically all Western powers, I would say, but I guess the U.S. in particular. So I am very excited to welcome Abby to the show today. Abby, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Max. It's an honor to be here, and thank you so much for that cool introduction. <laughs> awesome. Um, so before we start, did you want to just tell listeners a bit about the work you're doing now? I know the Empire Files is back up and running after some uncertainty with the U.S. sanctions affecting Telesur. Yeah, totally. So, uh, you know, the Trump administration really ramped up these sanctions that actually weren't in place until the Obama administration. So even though Venezuela has been a target of the U.S. empire ever since, of course, the election of Hugo Chavez, subsequently Maduro, definitely been in the crosshairs. But sanctions weren't actually implemented until Obama, which I found odd. Um, he just randomly declared Venezuela a unique national security threat. And I don't actually know where that came from. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I just remembered that they had a bunch of oil and, uh, yeah, they needed to implement <laughs> sanctions. But Trump really took that shit to a new level where he really seized the ability to function completely. And so we were shut down um, as kind of a happenstance of these sanctions. And it kind of went under the radar, frankly, mm -hmm. because, you know, amidst all of this other censorship going on and this kind of coordinated tech purge, um, our show gets shut down, but it kind of wasn't, you know, in, in line with what was going on, but it was also like an effect of Trump's policies. So mm -hmm. it kind of got swept under the radar. But like, yeah, our show got shut down. Tariq Ali's show got shut down. Um, we're trying to work out with Telesor maybe to, um, you know, have a syndicate of our show to at least air. But yeah, we had to go independent and we had to kind of do what everyone else is doing in this in insane climate, which mm -hmm. is go independent uh, and and base the show off donations and, and launch a big fundraiser. It just sucks that that's where we're at. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, again, if you're wanting to challenge corporations and, and state power, then that's kind of where you need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So are you still running the fundraiser or is that over? Yeah, it's ongoing. So we we got uh, 60K, which was huge. But as you know, I mean, you know, production does cost a lot. And we're and I'm, I am really uh, a perfectionist. And I really like things to look very high quality. And so I put a lot of effort, we put a lot of detail in our work. And so, you know, it takes mm -hmm. a long time, and it takes a lot of effort. And, um, and so I, you know, hopefully, we'll just continue to keep launching, you know, maybe every uh, six months, maybe if we if we run out, but we're just going to keep going with the funds that we have and produce the material that we're that's on the shelf and and just see where where it goes. But um, we're working on the Great March of Return documentary, which we're going to talk about later. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're actually going to Iran oh, in wow. January and Lebanon. Yeah. So we're going to go to Iran and Lebanon and just kind of demystify this country that Trump is ramping up again, sanctions, war, uh, just horrible rhetoric again. So uh, just showing Americans what it's really like there. And so we're mm -hmm. excited to do that. Yeah, that's amazing. So I'll definitely link uh, 
I guess, the GoFundMe in the show notes and your Patreon page. So if anyone's interested, please definitely donate to keep Empire Files going because it's super important, especially in this political climate. Thank you. So um, getting into the topic for today. So yeah, I asked you to come on to talk about your reporting in Palestine and on the Great March of Return. Because we've done an earlier episode, actually, I think it was episode 11 on the quote unquote vegan washing of Israel, where mm. Israel is basically trying to garner a bunch of good progressive PR to detract from what's actually going on there by just painting themselves as the vegan capital of the world, super progressive. That um, is but, hilarious. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a really big thing. There's actually a, a number wow. of very you know famous vegan, I guess, YouTube celebrities were invited to to do this tour of Israel. It was a whole big thing. And uh, they were criticized, obviously, and rightfully for doing this. And a lot of them had no idea what was going on. And they just thought, oh, what's what's the, what's wrong? You know, we're just going to Israel. Right. We're just doing this tour. Um, so yeah, vegan washing, very real thing. Um, so I hope that what we're going to talk about today will really hammer home why this and, you know, pink washing, whatever other washing that they're mm -hmm. doing is so completely egregious. So first, I was wondering if you could give just a brief rundown of how Israel was created in the first place with specific reference to the Nakba and what that is. Um, unfortunately, sometimes I still talk to old friends and I still very often hear the trope that the conflict is just quote unquote too complicated and it goes back thousands of years and how can we really parse out what's going on there? How can we really hold the forceful position either way, right? So yeah, I was wondering if you could just lay that out. Yeah, of course. I, I this is something that I thought my entire li adult life, you know, not, not my entire adult mm -hmm. life, my entire like childhood, adolescent life until I was a young adult, I actually didn't even know what Palestine was, mm. and I think that really shows you the completely skewed reality that we're presented um, with corporate media. I mean, just echoing kind of the Pentagon line whenever it comes to this conflict, and whenever mm -hmm. we want to get you know into the nuts and bolts of it beyond the headlines, it's just kind of. Poo poo does. Yes, it's been it's been going on for thousands of years, right? These people just can't get along. It's mm -hmm. it's uh, it's a conflict that can never be solved. It's the most complicated conflict in the world. You know, I've heard all of these <laughs> things kind of justifying why oh it, it'll never be solved. I mean, uh -huh. once you realize actually what is happening and what it is, it becomes crystal clear. It's actually one of the most simple conflicts in the world. It's an ongoing settler colonial state um, that is based on the ethnic cleansing and expulsion of the native indigenous inhabitants of what was historic Palestine. I mean, mm -hmm. the right to this land that, that uh, you know, Israeli Jews claim is based on the ancient biblical kingdoms of the Old Testament. So let's just get that out of the way. I mean, we're talking about ancient kingdoms that were cited in the Bible that disappeared 600 years before the birth of Jesus. So, mm -hmm. and I'll talk about this later, but as I'm on the streets and I interviewed a bunch of Israelis, just kind of about a bunch of stuff. And a lot of them were, you know, bringing up these kingdoms. You know, we were here first thousands of years ago. I mean, if that's the logic that you're going to use, uh, let's bring the Native <laughs> Americans back and ex right? expel us from the land. I mean, how far back does this logic go? But, right. you know, it did start off as as a more secular movement. It was, you know, there were some progressive elements. There were a lot of kibbutzes established. But, it, you know, the, the secular movement was uh, initially there to establish a homeland 
safe haven for Jews in the world. There was a lot of anti-Semitic terrorism going on. This was mm-hmm. well before World War World War II that this movement was initiated, um, the Zionist movement. They were thinking of other places in the world to establish the state of Israel. Um, obviously, they chose historic Palestine because of, again, reckoning back to the Bible, the birthplace of Jesus, a lot of historic symbolism there um, for all religions. That's why all religions d- were able to coexist there for, frankly, thousands of years before this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the Holocaust, it became like a very definitive place to establish the state there. And there was a lot of push because obviously the horrors and genocide of the Holocaust for Jews, then the spark really uh, was planted to bring kind of a mass exodus to establish there. There already Mm -hmm. were settlers there establishing homes. They were buying absentee land kind of similarly to a lot of other settler colonial states there. Um, We're talking about a, a, a time that Ottoman Palestine became British mandate Palestine. So it was mm-hmm. a colonial holdover as well. So it wasn't until 1947, you know, with um, all, the Holocaust horrors still still very fresh in people's minds, um, the Zionist project had come to fruition and you had the state of Israel created. Um, it was divided into three sections. It was partitioned in 1947, one of which was, and it looked like someone was just drunk, like belligerently <laughs> drunk, drawing up the lines. Like, I don't know how how that actually was uh, thought out because when you look at actually what was drawn out, it literally does not make any sense. I mean, everyone's uh-huh. seen that famous map that you see the four stages that's like completely gone. Uh-huh. Uh, even the first stage makes no sense because you have Gaza, which was drawn up as kind of this small strip of land essentially to dump surplus refugees, which would later, of course, become the open air prison that we know today, mm-hmm. closed off from the rest of the world. But at the time, it was just kind of a surplus of, of refugees in this tiny strip of land. The West Bank was drawn up for what was supposed to be the future Palestinian state. And as we know now, the atomization and complete takeover of legal settlements has made that essentially completely null and void. And then Jerusalem was kind of this international zone. So You know, long story short, Palestinians had no say in the establishment of the state of Israel. The country was carved up by colonial occupiers, essentially, and Mm -hmm. massive amounts of violence and terrorism were used to expel this population because, again, this was a forced expulsion to create an artificial Jewish majority. Mm -hmm. Um, The center of the campaign for the creation of Israel was the slogan that you hear still today, a land without a people for a people without a land. But, I mean, come on, these people knew that that the land was overrun with indigenous Mm -hmm. inhabitants. I mean, there were... Uh, tons of Arabs living there. And and you see quotes even from Ben-Gurion, which was the you know prime minister of Israel. You see um, a lot of people who were the founding Zionists talking it very frankly, kind of like Christopher Columbus style. Like if you <laughs> mm-hmm. read these people's diaries and stuff, I mean, they are openly talking about conquering, massacring, and, and essentially ethnically cleansing the native people in a proud way. I mean, you have Ben-Gurion saying, we were conquistadores. We were a nation of conquerors. We were conquering land. I mean, this guy is Looks like this happy-go-lucky dude in the in the Tel Aviv airport you go now, and he's like a mascot, you wow. know. He, here he is uh, proclaiming this back in the day. But the Nakba is very, very important. The Nakba is a very central tenant to you know the Palestinian plight and cause to understand because. Again, this was this was a southern colonial state plopped on top of an Arab country without consulting the indigenous population. So, of course, this mm-hmm. results in, into an armed conflict. Obviously, a lot of Arab countries were upset. Uh, this mm-hmm. was a p- pretty big affront. And so 
what followed that nascent that nascent year of Israel was a series of bloodletting massacres and essentially violent terrorism. Um, there was an Ergun militia um, that committed several massacres. One of its head commanders would later become the Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin. Um, and and what the, these militias did was um, basically turned into the Nakba, which was a mass expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, a lot of them peaceful, because they did a, they did something which was called Plan Delet, where they wanted to target specifically the peaceful Palestinians um, hmm. to create terror, to create havoc, to force them all to leave, because a lot of these people weren't leaving. And so the people that they didn't massacre, which they ended up massacring actually 500 Palestinian towns and villages, which they raised to the ground. Wow. Um, but not only that, they actually, you know, targeted actually the peaceful, non-resisting Palestinians just to send a message. At the time, um, Albert Einstein even and dozens of other Jewish academics and stuff published this letter in the New York Times and they were saying, look, this is actually akin to Nazi Germany. Like this was, mm -hmm. I mean, think about how crazy that is. Like it's so taboo for us to talk about that now, mm -hmm. you know, even though it's so obvious. But like yeah. back then you had like Jews who were very prominent saying like, whoa, 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 like this is crazy. We <laughs> yeah. actually don't support this. And it was like right, right. after the Holocaust. Uh -huh. So, you know, so this was the Nakba. This was the Nakba, this violent expulsion of nearly a million people. Um, and it was so violent and it was so... Um, egregious that it forced the UN to respond. And that's where you hear this, this resolution 194 that's still in effect to this day that orders Israel to allow the 800,000 Palestinians that were ethnically cleansed to return to their homes. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see, you know, the displacement, tens of thousands of Palestinians that are still in refugee camps, 70% of all Palestinians in the world are refugees mm -hmm. to, to this day. And then there's the 1967 war, which is a whole other thing, which you had, I think, a couple hundred thousand more that were ethnically cleansed during that war, because of course we know the Israel project is really the greater Israel project, and that's why you see um, the Golan Heights and a lot of other areas uh, attempted to be colonized and occupied as well. Mm. So what happened after the Nakba? Those who remained inside of the borders of Israel, um, you know, their new regime codified into law this, the superiority of Jewish settlers, and so that's why you see the, the perpetuation and continuation of the apartheid state today. And then you know Israel becomes this military garrison for the. U.S. later on. Mm -hmm. And whatever's left of Palestine there, if you look at the map, that famous map, I mean, whatever's left for the land of Palestine is still being violently colonized mm -hmm. every day. Mm hmm. Right. So not not terribly complicated then. <laughs> not not yeah, terribly. It's like super straightforward. Like <laughs> right. Pretty easy to parse out what's going on here. So you've been to Palestine several times. Uh you recently met Ahad Tamimi, the 17-year-old who was jailed for slapping a soldier who had just shot her cousin in the head. Uh, and interviewed her for for the Empire Files. You also reported on what you saw there in detail through media routes. So I was wondering if you could speak to what the mainstream media is missing in terms of the reality on the mm -hmm. ground in, in Gaza on the West Bank, what people need to know about life there, and perhaps also what shocked you the most about your reporting on Palestine. Oh, my God. I mean, buckle up, because there's the, <laughs> when, even when I was preparing for this interview, I was like stunned again. I mean, you actually forget how crazy it is. Like, it's mm -hmm. so it's so abysmal. Mm -hmm. It is so, so abysmal what is going on in every facet of Palestinian life. And and I will go over all of them. I wanted to quickly start off with Ahed Tamimi because, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, she's this icon of resistance to understand her plight. Like, 
you know, she's in the West Bank. So she's in this kind of atomization area where there's constant, um, you know, raids. Soldiers are going in there every week, raiding, tear gassing, shooting live ammunition um, mm-hmm. at her friends and family. And, you know, as you mentioned, like they had shot her cousin. You see a photo of this guy. His head is dented in like part of his fucking brain is missing. Mm-hmm. So that's what they do on a daily basis. And you look at Ahed's entire family. Her, her, her dad was tortured in Israeli prison. Her mom arrested. Her cousin arrested, shot, uncle shot, dead. Like that's, that's her life. Her life has mm-hmm. been death, horror, and trauma of like her family being mutilated and murdered. Mm-hmm. So just keep that into context when, yeah, of course she slapped the fucking soldier. Wouldn't you? Like, goddamn, that's the least I would do. Like after he almost kills my cousin. So this mm-hmm. is this is the context of what Ahed Tamimi was doing. Um, and, you know, she, of course, becomes this icon. She's a, an amazing woman. I was able to interview her before this all happened. And I was just shocked because, you know, she was already an icon because she's been fighting these soldiers basically her entire life, like as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she told me the saddest thing, one of the saddest things that really just hit home. And of course, there's a million things, but there's some things that really just stick with you. And one of the things that stuck with me was when she said, I just asked her, you know, she's a 16 year old kid. I was like, what, what are your dreams? Like, what are your hopes? And she said, I want to go to the beach. Mm. Like the fact that she couldn't go to the beach and mm-hmm. she lives miles away from the beach because she's imprisoned, mm. you know, in this area and you have to have permits. And it's kind of like a golden ticket. If you get a permit once in your life, you can maybe go to the beach. I mean, it was just, mm-hmm. I guess it was just one of those things that just was like devastating. <laughs> like yeah. this little girl wants to go to the beach and instead she's fighting off like occupying soldiers um, and trying to protect her family. I mean, this is not what little kids should be doing. Like this is not life, mm-hmm. but yeah. that's Ahid and, 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 and she's out of prison and which is amazing. But when I first got there, I first got there, we're leaving the airport. You know, it was a miracle that we got in because as we know, they're just arbitrarily banning people who are affiliated with BDS. And especially, you know, I think if they really knew who we were, maybe (laughs) it would have been a different story. People are just like outright banned from the country. Um, Mm -hmm. One woman who was with us in the airplane, simply she had, she was not political at all. We were just simply chatting with her in line and she, um, she got rejected from going into the country because she had an Arab language book. And they said, you're an Arab sympathizer. That's that's how arbitrary and random and like how stifling they are about controlling the narrative. And and you mentioned, what is the media missing? The media is missing everything. They paint this as an equal fight. They paint, you know, whatever's happening in Gaza, there's clashes. Oh, just the Israeli and Palestinians can't get along. They're constantly fighting. Um, no, it's a brutal occupation. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Palestinians can't have guns. Um, one of the other shocking things to me um, was, again, leaving the airport. I immediately saw a row of people walking up this giant mountain. And I asked my friend Nancy Mansour, who does these amazing tours there. She's with a group called Existence is Resistance. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, yeah, that's that's just like an effect of the blockade. They'll just arbitrarily blockade giant streets and make Palestinians like walk miles to get home. Like they have to like park at the bottom of hills and walk up a mountain to get to their house. And I was like, wait, what? Jesus. Um, so that's just like little things like that. Once you realize the dehumanization and like the institutionalization of the dehumanization there mm-hmm. and the, the way that they do this, like to randomly block off, like block off your neighborhood. You have to like now take a, um, you need now take a route that's like three times as long. Like that's your entire day is now getting home. Like, so mm-hmm. blocking off schools, um, just making you suffer 
in every possible way. Mm -hmm. Um, Another shocking thing that I found was that the West Bank is under martial law. It's under Israeli military law because it's under brutal occupation. So not only the atomization, not only the, the illegal settlements, but the fact that you it's illegal for you to be in a political party. It's illegal for you to hold a flag. It's illegal wow. for you to protest, um, to do pretty much anything. Again, weapons are illegal, even if you have something that could be construed as a weapon, like a nail file. Uh-huh. If you've been, and, and again, we're talking about a place that, you know, I, I think like 50% of Palestinian men have like been in and out of these prisons because that's how much they just, you know, collectively punish everyone. And then they'll throw you in prison for decades. And then you come out and if you're found with a nail file, you just get right back into prison. Uh, wow. We, You know, this series of dehumanizing checkpoints, Mike, my partner who was an occupying soldier of Iraq, he was like, I really fucking feel like I'm in Iraq because <laughs> there's people with AR-15s pointing at your faces going through these checkpoints. And, you know, they say, oh, it's not an apartheid state. Really? Because the fucking streets are different. You drive uh-huh. in different cars with different license plates if you're a Jewish settler and if you're an Arab. We were at one, when we were in, you know, Dan Cohen's car who was uh, in, with settler plates, we weren't fucked with really with the, with the soldiers. The second that we got into a Palestinian's car, we were pulled over, harassed. I almost shit my pants because this guy had an AR-15 pointed at my face mm-hmm. um, and with his finger on the trigger. And he's grabbing all of our stuff. And I was like, what is he going to do to us? And I realized that I had a nail file in my purse. And I was like, oh, my God, you guys just got out of prison because we were with two, you know, adult Palestinian men. And of course, all of them have been out of prison and they were just chill. They were like, we go through this every day. And I was like, I don't want to fucking get you guys in prison. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. They're like, you need to calm down. We go through this all the time. But I was just like, how do you guys go through? Like the fact that that was normalized. And then the soldier comes back and he's like, why are you driving with terrorists? And I was just like, he was like, are they kidnapping you? I mean, it was just... It was such a mind fuck. So there's so many stories, and I and if you if you can let me, I mean, I could just go off on on a ton of them. I mean, another really <laughs> crazy do. one was yeah, no, this is it's just so nuts. Yeah. Um, another really crazy one was within days that we were there, this this um, farmer was shot in the back. You know that he maybe didn't hear some command from the soldier. Who the hell knows? They shoot people every day, and they get away with it with total impunity. So this guy was mm-hmm. killed. We went to his funeral. So, you know, going back to the Sam Harris mantra that Palestinians love death, they're a death fucking cult, mm-hmm. they, they worship martyrdom. Yeah, go to a fucking funeral, Sam. Go to a funeral in the West Bank and sit down with wailing Palestinian mothers who lose their family members every day. And you tell me that they worship death and that mm-hmm. it's a death cult. No, they're pretty much fucking suffering just like anyone else who, who loses someone that they love. And mm-hmm. I was in the middle of a room with these women suffering and crying because their husband was just killed. And that's not even the worst of it all. And and the fact that they even opened their homes to us is nuts. I mean, we could have been settlers. They don't know who the hell they are. They're extremely gracious and open. They open their 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 homes are open to you. They're always cooking. They want you to come in, have coffee with them, have dates. So we're leaving this funeral just devastated that this had even happened. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're leaving, Israeli soldiers had blockaded the street and started tear gassing everyone oh my and started God. shooting rubber bullets at people who were in the funeral just to punish the funeral goers. They Jesus. blockaded the street and made everyone we actually thought we were going to get killed um nancy was like they could shoot it they they, she said if they see that we have a picture of this guy in our car like dash they could just shoot us through the window and kill us right now so she's dry like spinning around trying to get the hell away from these soldiers and we had to take an hour um alternative route home 
So this is just like, I mean, just imagine this on a daily basis Mm -hmm. for these people. Um, Mm -hmm. Another point, we were going through this really main checkpoint called the Calandia checkpoint. And we're in a car and Dan uh, was telling us, he's like, yeah, he's like six months ago, some woman um, got executed, you know, soldiers killed her. And then her brother comes and tries to like lay over her body and they kill him. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, why? And he was like, because she didn't know the signs were in Hebrew and she, and it says don't walk. And so she just like kept walking because, you know, all the signs are in Hebrew. And if you don't know what's going on, you get killed. She was actually pregnant too. Ugh. And then, you know, what they'll do a lot of these times is they'll throw a knife or they'll be like, she had a knife and, and you can never prove it. And then the case closed, you know, the video's never released. Well, what the hell happened there? So we're mm-hmm. at this checkpoint with Dan telling us the story. We're like, oh my God, that's nuts. And all of a sudden this guy starts getting shot at this guy, Palestinian guy walking with his hands up, clearly like drunk, walking toward the checkpoint and bullets start fucking spraying. And, and I get down. And again, we thought we were going to die. Like at that moment, we were like, the bullets are going to ricochet. Like when people are like, oh, you're fine if you're an American there. They don't give a shit if you're an American. They didn't go check our passports. They don't care if you're Rachel Corey. They will run you over with a fucking bulldozer. We all know what happened to her. So mm-hmm. that, like, just throw that out the window. So they're shooting arbitrarily at this guy. We thought he was going to die. It was a miracle he survived mm-hmm. um, because we know that the really the policy is to shoot to kill. Another surprising thing to me was... Going back to the Rachel Corey story, I mean, getting run over by an Israeli bulldozer, they actually have a statue of a caterpillar bulldozer like up in the middle of whatever as you're driving on the highway. It's like, wait, are you like honoring the bulldozer? Like, are you this is a symbol of like brutal oppression and death. What? And this is like a big statue. Like, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. I know that the Caterpillar Corporation is like profiting immensely off of the occupation but like the fact that that was there was just like disgusting that's a really weird thing to have a statue of completely bizarre i mean everyone has a horror story once you realize like once you talk to palestinians and, and that's the thing is like they're so nice and welcoming and gracious but everyone's been through like a traumatic horrifying event mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. a horrifying event and and really briefly i mean i met this woman named aya shot in the pelvis like very close to her vagina the bullet is still lodged into her because she was so scared to go to a hospital because then she thought that she would be collectively punished because she got shot at a protest Mm. and she got shot at a protest for throwing a rock and the guy Mm. next to her was holding a flag and he got shot in the heart and killed in front of her her (sighs) husband uh brother got killed after her house got raided so that this is just like one woman Mm -hmm. another guy that we met in Hebron, which is like, you know, a lot of these settlements are in the middle of the West Bank. They're like in the middle of kind of like a lot of open land where you're building settlements like on top of Arab villages and shit. But then there's a settlement called Hebron, which is in the middle of a thriving, bustling Palestinian city. And a bunch of settlers, radical settlers, like took over the city and then like never left. And so the IDF to appease the settlers, just formed a giant outpost like around these settlers and completely Mm. divided this thriving city into like essentially a ghost town. And so, Mm. Max, when you see when you see these videos, it is probably one of the most visceral um, examples of apartheid because you literally see that settlers have caged off Palestinians and they are living under caged areas where settlers have built on top of the Palestinians and throw all of their trash on top of them. What? So the Palestinians are living under caged areas and there's trash 
diapers, excrement, feces, bottles of piss, bottles of poison, constantly. And I saw it. I mean, a film it. You can watch it. There's like piles of trash. And this one guy who, who was there, he just runs like a little store. Yeah. I just, I was like, oh, so what's your story? Like, let, let's fucking hear what you have to say. And he's just like, uh-huh. yeah. He's like, well, my pregnant wife was shot and killed. Luckily, the baby survived because the labor was induced when she was killed. And I was like, good oh. God. And then he was wow. like, my child was blinded because someone threw a chemical incendiary <gasps> from her from above. And it's just like, what is happening? Like, this is like, I mean, it's just unbelievable once mm-hmm. you realize what these people go through on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just to wrap this part up, Another really shocking thing, Mex, was finding out, you know, driving along these roads and it's just, it's such a stunningly beautiful place too. Like, you mm-hmm. know, the olive trees and like just the rocks and the ancient kind of like mystique of of having so much history, you know, like history and symbolism and, um, and just rich culture that exists there. And uh, from afar, I saw the Dome of the Rock and we stopped and took a photo and stuff. And Nancy told me, she was like, yeah, she's like, um, the majority of Palestinians could actually never go there. Hmm. Um, and that, and I just like started bawling. I was mm-hmm. just like, that is like, mm-hmm. like you can never go to one of the most sacred places in your religion. Like you are just forbidden and you yeah. can just see it from afar and you're never allowed to go there because you're Palestinian. And like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just something that's very, very, it was just really, really uh, disheartening and stunning mm-hmm. to me. And I didn't actually realize that. I didn't realize how actually difficult it was to maneuver and, and visit places of worship as a Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's what it is. And I mean, if you're looking at the settlements in the West Bank, um, the architecture of oppression, I mean, just the craziness of the settlers, the terrorism going on, they just stoned to death a woman. A Palestinian oh woman, God. you see photos. I mean, they yeah, they just threw like boulders through her and and like rocks and and killed her while she was sitting in a car. So all <sighs> this rhetoric about you know they they have stones and that should be like equated to like a gun. Well, I don't really actually see any examples recently of Israelis getting stoned to death by Palestinians. So no. you know the architecture of oppression in the West Bank is so visceral too because. You know, they build on top of these Arab villages and then they just relentlessly terrorize them. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I just read a story the other day of, you know, some school in the West Bank that's been overridden with like settler sewage. Like they've been Ugh. having to wade in sewage for weeks. Um, and this is like the second time this has happened in a couple months. So we visited uh, last story I'll tell last story I'll tell about what, you know, what shocked me. And, you know, the prison industry is totally insane too. what they do, the 99% conviction rate, the putting kids in prison, torturing, all that. But Mm -hmm. the last thing that really shocked me, again, was the settler terrorism and how settlements actually can work. Because um, I thought that all the settlements were like official settlements where you go and build and you get like permits and you you have like a big construction site. That's Mm -hmm. that's happening like at a very rapid pace. And I think settlements just hit a 10 year high and we can get into how Trump is really exacerbating all this. But Mm -hmm. one of the craziest things that I found was that you can literally go to Palestine, move on top of an Arab village and just set up a tractor trailer. And that's all you need to do. You set up a tractor trailer Mm -hmm. ominously like dominating whatever Arab village you want to terrorize. And then immediately IDF soldiers will provide an outpost for you. 
They will provide electricity for you. They will provide a water line. They will provide all of this. And this is even like technically, quote unquote, illegal under Israeli law, but it's still codified. And I think they actually retroactively like immunized all of the settlements just to like have a blanket like mandate. Like, yeah, all these are good. But Mm -hmm. that that, that was shocking to me. I was like, wait a minute. Like, this is what you do? Like, Mm -hmm. this is what actually how the settlements start. And the process of settlements. And I visited this guy, um, uh, um, Ahmed, um, one of not not a guy, a kid, like a five year old child who was one of the lone survivors of an arson attack from these crazed settlers who went oh, like in a group of ten or more and firebombed his entire home and um, oh. doused his mother and father with gasoline and uh, the infant baby Ollie and killed them all. And um, now his grandfather has to be his caretaker. And but but it hasn't stopped, Max. Mm-hmm. These settlers come back to Duma and they terrorize the family and they say, we killed three. There's one more. God. They send them death threats on WhatsApp, Facebook. When Ahmed was recovering from his burns in the hospital, they were terrorizing and protesting outside of the hospital, God. holding up three fingers. So that's that's kind of like where we're at um, in terms of, you know, Palestinians in terms of their resistance. Yeah, they're extremely resilient. They will die for their cause because they actually have no other way um, to protest at this point. And we can, you mm-hmm. know, we can get into Gaza and what's going on there. But like, that's, that's what's going on. The settlers are terrorizing them with guns, weapons, and fire bombings, mm-hmm. and God knows what else. And Palestinians are just unarmed. And again, if they're found with anything that, that can be construed as a weapon, they'll just go to jail for decades. And then their just houses continue to get arbitrarily raided, uh, you know, and the olive trees get burned down. Like all of their means to live and work and thrive are really just severed at the knees. That was a lot. Sorry. That was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really, really fucking horrifying. Um, And I mean, in terms of just life, I mean, they only get a couple hours of electricity per day, you know, like food, water is totally scarce. I was actually just listening to your latest episode of Media Roots and you were talking about this like self-demolition thing where they're actually Palestinians are having to demolish their own homes. Yeah, exactly. So now, yeah, the home demolition thing is crazy too, because you can like, you literally put a rock, and I say, I'm saying literally way too much, but you put a rock (laughs) in front of someone's home or down the street. You put a rock in front of someone or down the street with a little piece of paper, and that's Mm -hmm. if you're lucky. And if you don't find the paper, if the wind blows it away, like that's your order. So that's just like technically Israel could be like, whatever, we gave you an order. We're just going to come bulldoze your home. But because they're actually charging exorbitant fees on top of the home demolitions, now Palestinians are being forced to self-demolish, to save money. So they're not homeless and owe the state of Israel like God knows how much money. And I mean, they have no choice. Again, they they can't actually get permits. Israel does not authorize permits for building. And mm-hmm. so they have to do it illegally because they can't leave their homes. They can't like move. Mm-hmm. Like their homes will be taken over by settlers. Oh, yeah. and one more quick thing yeah. to get into the Gaza part is that we were actually banned from going to Gaza. I was banned from going into Gaza, which is why we hired all of this crew to do the Gaza documentary for us. And we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but because because they told me I'm a, not only a propagandist, mm-hmm. I'm not only a propagandist and not a journalist, but I'm also an Iranian agent. Wow. I'm an Iranian agent. This is like the the office of like the <laughs> prime minister like wrote me. And I was like, oh, wait, I actually got scared though because I was like, wait a minute. Like if I, you know that I'm within Israel right now and you're actually calling me like an Iranian spy. Wow. And we actually know how, you know, what they think about journalists like there's no like actual protection for journalists anyway. So I was like, uh-huh. well, I actually got really scared at what could have happened to us there because, you know, we all know. 
right. what the potential you know outcome could be. So it's it was terrifying. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of Isra- Israelis are banned from going to Gaza too. So it's like they can't even see what humanitarian crisis exists in their own like mm-hmm. land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's unbelievable. Um, I, I cannot even imagine how people are, you know, resilient there in the slightest. Um, even even if they right. weren't being terrorized by all the bombs and the soldiers and everything. I mean, just the conditions of just basic existence and not having basic necessities to live your life would just be hard enough, right? So totally. anyway, so you know, when this this trope that it's quote unquote just so complicated that we can't possibly understand mm-hmm. it, when this trope kind of fails, Hamas is often held up as this justification for, you know, brutal genocide. So I was wondering if yeah. you could speak a bit to the construction of Hamas as this kind of omnipresent terrorist group that's really pulling the strings behind every protest and how this actually maps onto the reality on the ground. Sure. So like I said, the West Bank is actually under brutal Israeli military occupation. So there's no political parties. There's kind of a um, a appearance that there is a Palestinian state, right? Because you have the mm-hmm. Palestinian Authority and you have a Mahmoud Abbas. And, and so it's kind of like this falsified notion that there like is a Palestinian leader and like he's responsible for the mismanagement of the resources of the West Bank. No, mm. not at all. He's literally just like a puppet of the Israeli government to keep up the facade that that exists, right? That mm-hmm. Palestinians have agency. Then you're talking about Gaza. So Gaza used to be under Israeli military occupation, brutal military occupation, just the same as the West Bank. Then there was an election. Um, 2006, Hamas wins a democratic election over Fatah. So you have a lot of declassified cables and a lot of behind the scenes dealings with you know the Israeli government admitting that they actually favored Hamas, and they strategize mm-hmm. for Hamas to win. You could argue to enact the brutal siege that we're seeing today on Gaza. So, like, they might have wanted Hamas to win, so then they can just inevitably be like, "Well, we actually can't be compatible with Hamas. Hamas mm-hmm. wants to destroy the state of Israel, so now we need to brutally like, like, constrict all of Gaza and make you guys starve and fucking die a slow death." Like, that's basically <laughs> what the logic was, inevitably. So, mm-hmm. Hamas wins this democratic election. And essentially gives Israel the justification to do to enact the siege. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we're at. So Gaza right now is, uh, you know, a couple hours of electricity a day, uh, 90, over 90 percent of the water is unpotable. The U.N. says in just like a year or two, it's going to be completely uninhabitable. Ugh. But yeah, I mean, Hamas, of course, Hamas is used as um, as the reason. Yeah. And Hamas is conflated with ISIS all the fucking time and it's completely uh, disgusting to co- to conflate ISIS and Hamas. First of all, they're completely totally separate things. Mm-hmm. The only thing similar about them is that they're a religious party. Um Hamas has abandoned long ago the kind of crazy rhetoric um of, you know, what when people said that they could construe that as like advocating the genocide of Jews and like the abolishment of Israel. Hamas abandoned that charter a long ass time ago and they essentially for the last near decade or at least couple of years have been advocating like nonviolent and only retaliatory resistance efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've backed off all of that. Cause I guess, you know, you know, at first, of course, like you're under brutal occupation and brutal siege. And of course people are going to vote for 
the party that they felt like would resist what they were going to. Mm -hmm. Um, And under, you know, under like international law, Palestinians do have the right to resist brutal occupation. That's illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, And under international law, like all of this is illegal. And so there's a lot of like nuances, you know, about what, you know, support of Hamas, like what Hamas really is to Palestinians. I mean, I think it's unfair to characterize Hamas as like, this is what people in Gaza really want. Mm -hmm. I think that um, just like Americans, I mean, a a lot of Palestinians in Gaza did not vote for Hamas. Hamas just won the majority of the election over Fatah and and a lot of other political parties. It's, uh, It's not everyone in Gaza likes Hamas or even is like Hamas. Um, Mm -hmm. But the thing is, they're all united in their resistance against the occupation. Mm -hmm. Um, There's communist factions, um, PFLP. There's secular factions in Gaza. Um, Mm -hmm. The thing is, and also Hamas is also what is Israel considers all of Gaza. Like they, they just talk about Gaza and they're like everything in Gaza is Hamas. And that's how they justify like relentlessly and brutal, brutally like bombing it every mm-hmm. couple of years and like killing hundreds of people. They're just like, everything's a Hamas target. Everyone's yeah. affiliated with Hamas, but it's like Hamas is the government. So it's like, if you want a job doing electrical work, like mm-hmm. you are considered a member of Hamas, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's so broad it's literally like if you if you if you, even if you just like want a job or need a job, you probably would be construed as Hamas because you are working as a de facto arm of the government to do something in Gaza, mm-hmm. like just by proxy. Right. So that's super unfair, and it's a it's just it's just really unfair to blanket everyone in Gaza as Hamas. And even if you are looking at Hamas and you want to think that everyone in Gaza is Hamas, like can you blame them? Mm-hmm. Like, can you blame them right. for wanting to support a party that is going to actually fight? militarily to try to free them. Uh-huh. And that's what Hamas Hamas's entire thing is a free Palestine. And and to equate that with ISIS is is abhorrent. Yeah. Abhorrent and and um disgraceful. So mm-hmm. yeah, and and again, like they also really try to just kill soldiers. Um you can argue that, you know, a lot of these rockets that are launched, yeah, it's it's terrorizing Israeli civilians. Well, why did Israeli civilians go and move right next to Gaza where they can get hit with rockets? Like why are they right there? Um, that's weird too. But yeah, I mean, even in the recent raid in Gaza where Israeli commandos broke the ceasefire like they always do, actually went into Gaza and assassinated seven people. Mm. And then all the news was like, oh, Hamas sends rockets, like a flood of rockets to Israel. It's like, how come you guys didn't talk about the fact that Israel sent like a, like did a botched raid where they assassinated seven people? Mm-hmm. And then Hamas, in response to that, they saw a bus of Israeli soldiers. They filmed it. They filmed all the soldiers getting out of the bus. And then they like killed one Israeli soldier that was left on the bus, basically sending a message that we could kill more of you. We could do a lot, but we're not going to because we don't want to escalate this. Mm-hmm. You guys are escalating this. Um, so yeah, Hamas is a catch-all and, and this great march of return, it's disgraceful that people are saying, I've had so many people, Mex, tell me, oh, everyone that died is Hamas. It's Ugh. like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? Uh-huh. This is how fucking dehumanized these people are that you just say they're Hamas and you yeah. can just kill them extrajudicially, commit an ongoing massacre of more than 220 people because they're quote unquote Hamas mm-hmm. children, medics. Like, fuck you guys. And and, and the Bill mm-hmm. Maher and Barry Weiss is making, Ugh. mocking this and saying they fell for it. Like, she actually had the audacity to be like, they fell for it. They fell for what? Yeah, They're fucking disgusting. getting massacred. They're getting massacred. So mm-hmm. that kills me, dude. Like, this whole Hamas thing. And and I and one more quick story about Hamas thing. I was in, you know, I was I was reporting on um 
the Operation Pillar of Cloud. This was like back in 2012, I think, Operation Pillar of Cloud. And this was another, you know, brutal bombing of of the Gaza Strip, just like they do every year or, or a couple of years. And they bombed the RT headquarters. They bombed the Al-Sharok Journalist Tower. Mm-hmm. And again, they just bombed the Al-Aqsa Journalist Tower like uh, a couple days ago. You know, they, they bombed Journalist Towers because it's a Hamas propaganda arm. But they bombed this Journalist Tower. RT, France 24, someone's leg got blown off like in this bombing campaign. Jesus. And Avita Lebovich, she was an IDF spokeswoman at the time. When RT asked them, like, what, can you release a statement or respond to why you targeted like an RT office mm-hmm. in this journalist tower? This is an international, like, this is against international law and a war crime. And Avita Lebovich responded. She said, RT has taken a stand Oof. on the coverage. Wow. Yeah, and I and it was beca- and I was reporting on how fucked up what the Israeli military was doing the week before. I was like, wait, are you actually saying that you bombed the journalist tower because of what I was reporting on? Like, wow. how is this happening? Right. And then she follows up in the press release, and she's like, not the press release. Then she follows up in the statement, being like, yeah, and by the way, everything in Gaza is a Hamas target. So it's wow. like, okay, well, I guess it doesn't even matter then because everything's a Hamas target. So get out of Gaza if you don't want to be bombed. Mm-hmm. Except you can't. <laughs> Except you can't. Yeah. 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 And and to say that these people are like, again, like the Great March of Return, this is a mass movement. There is no Hamas commandos. There's no militias behind them. Um, Mm -hmm. These this is a united mass movement in Gaza of pretty much everyone who is participating in this in astounding numbers. And I have not seen one photo of anyone who's in Hamas Mm -hmm. participating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just fucking un- unbelievable. I mean, I actually see some correlations between that and the construction of indigenous resistance as terrorism in North America, because mm-hmm. like the, the U.S. and Canada are also illegal colonial occupations. Um, like recently, there was some backlash from progressives who were angry at leaders of Canada's Social Democratic Party for not cutting ties with Israel. But I mean, really, like, how can we expect settler colonial states? who are to this day threatening the survival of indigenous nations in North America to actually denounce or give a fuck about another settler colonial state committing acts of genocide. Like, like why would, like, how could you possibly, that would be so hypocritical unless you actually address what we're doing here on Turtle Island. But anyway. um, That's such a good point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Anyway, so uh, so let's get into the actual the Great March of Return. Can you explain what that is and talk about your reporting there and the protests? Um, I know you have some unreleased footage from the protests that'll come out on the Empire Files. Yeah, exactly. So because we were banned from going to Gaza, one of the world's most gravest humanitarian crises that we are sponsoring with our tax dollars to the tune of ten million dollars every day, mm-hmm. we can't go in. We're, we're banned. So we did the next best thing. And, and I've been coordinating with um, organizers from the Great March of Return and journalists housed in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try not to cry because every time I tell this story, I, I end up tearing up. But um, one thing that they told me that is just absolutely heartbreaking before we get into actually what they're doing. Um, no, you know what? I'm, okay. I'm going to tell that first. So I, I had a meeting with them and... Um, and they basically told me like they wanted to know why, like how is the U.S. media reporting this? You know, is is public pressure 
working is public perception changing you know this is like after like that that one day of like 60 people being killed in like one day it was like a very egregious massacre this is like Mm -hmm. kind of the beginning of the great march of return and these journalists um were talking to me and i was like no i said amazingly no um, I, I hate to be the one to tell you that, but no, the media is not, it doesn't matter what you do, mm-hmm. uh, actually. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you guys are peaceful. It doesn't matter if you die by the hundreds. Like the media is still not going to report it. Mm-hmm. And they said, I said, you know, what, is there a message that I can bring like to Americans that you want to tell them? And they said, we don't want to die. They mm-hmm. said, can you tell Americans that we love life? Mm-hmm. And that we want to live. And like the fact that they had to like tell me that. Yeah. Like that, like that's what they had. It's like, of course you do. Like, yeah. of course you want to live. Like, uh-huh. like that's so sad that you have to tell me that to tell people uh, because yeah. of how much Palestinians have been like dehumanized and painted as terrorists. Like it's mm-hmm. really, really, really tough. Mm-hmm. So we hired we hired six people there to essentially risk their lives, Max. I mean, they're going mm-hmm. to the and I hate to call it a border. It's literally a fence from their own land, you know, yeah. that they've been ethnically cleansed from just like literally miles away. Like they can see their original homes that they're trapped in this fence caged off area from. Yeah. Um, so they, you know, as we're describing what Gaza's like, of course, you can't live like that. Of course, it's not a a. a place that you can thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you don't have electricity, you don't have potable water, there's no jobs, unemployment skyrocketed. Um, you It's one of the only places in the world that you actually can't even flee mm-hmm. as a refugee. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, I mean, people, if they have very strict rules, if you go too far off of the zone while you're fishing, you get executed. This just wow. happened to a fisherman the other day. So they have they have it locked down, like fucking locked down. Yeah. Um, and you can't leave, which is like crazy. It's like, don't you want these people to leave? Like, have right. them flee on boats. <laughs> like, why? Why do you like what is going on here? Right. It's like they seriously <laughs> want them to suffer and die right. um, is what's happening. And so, you know, we're talking about a brutal siege that's been going on for years and years. And so nothing's worked. There's no sympathy. Every, you see them, the way that the media paints this. And so they have organized themselves in the tens of thousands to implement a mass civil disobedience called the Great March of Return. And this was actually sparked from Trump's maneuvering to move that embassy to Jerusalem. It was one mm-hmm. of the most significant events actually since the Nakba. I mean, mm-hmm. this was a hugely significant event that basically... Um, revealed blatantly ripped the mask off the peace process showed that the u.s is not uh, an arbitrator of peace and will actually totally take israel's side and so trump did that and so it sparked off the great march of return and they held it actually in um in concurrence with the anniversary of the nakba um and their whole plight is you know in line with the bds they want a right to return to their homes they want to abide by that un resolution 194 that says that they have a right to return to their homes and so one of the first so every friday and this has been going on for i think 38 weeks at this point that's insane mm-hmm. so since march every friday they go out in the tens of thousands and protest peacefully holding flags marching um chanting and so, of course, Israel's pointed to the very few examples of like them burning a tire. Yeah, they burn fucking tires because they're <laughs> getting assassinated by snipers who are perched up on a hilltop. So, of course, they're obfuscating the view mm-hmm. by burning tires. Like, wow, that's not terrorism. Right. So what has Israeli soldiers done in response to this Great March of Return peaceful resistance effort? They drew out 
a ton of snipers that perched up on a hilltop a couple of yards away from this fence and just started picking people off. Mm-hmm. Um, in one day, um, in one of the first Fridays that happened, in one day they killed over 60 marchers. Peaceful people, one of the most egregious massacres in the history of, I think, humanity. Like, I actually can't remember a time mm-hmm. that crazy. I mean, uh, actually, maybe the Egyptian revolution where like 700 <laughs> protesters were just like slaughtered. Like, we forget about that. Like, mm-hmm. this is kind of the same thing, except it's like a slow noose. It's mm-hmm. like because it's been going on for so long. Like, yeah, there was that first day that was absolutely horrifying. I remember the front page of the New York Times the day after give a sense of how skewed the media is, you know, one of the most egregious massacres ever, no fucking brainer, like no Israeli soldiers dead, 60 people dead, unarmed front page of the New York times. The next day says Israelis reflect. I hope that every bullet was justified. Wow. That was the front page of the New York times. Wow. Well, guess what? Not one fucking bullet was justified and not one bullet has ever been justified because Uh as we speak, Mex, we're talking about more than 220 killed, 18,000 wounded. Wow. Simply protesting their abysmal living conditions. I mean, there is no proof that any person who was shot or killed was armed. No Mm -hmm. proof that anyone was quote unquote Hamas. And even if they were, that doesn't mean shit. Mm-hmm. And um, again, it's nonviolent. I mean, these protests are met with deadly extreme force every time. They're using mm-hmm. dum dum rounds. These are these exploding bullets. This is a war crime in itself. These bullets like hit these people in the legs because they shoot the joints. You know, not only do they shoot to kill, they do headshots, heart shots, but they're also like shooting limbs. Right. Um, and so they shoot their legs out. They'll shoot their, you know, to to cripple them for life. And right. these bullets will explode and like rock around in your body. Ugh. Um, and, and, and then the, it's grisly. And then the people who are like injured, like a lot of these people could have survived, Uh but the thing is they're denying their permits for travel, like outside to get treatment. Because as we know, there is no, like, there's very few, um, things for medical treatment within Gaza. So cancer treatment off the table, you're dead. Um, no radiation, like no therapy for people like that who are incurring like severe debilitating illnesses. And so when these people were shot in their limbs, they were amputated. So there's like hundreds of like amputees for fucking no reason that Mm -hmm. could have been saved just because the hospitals were overrun. And then Israel just permitted everyone from or or blocked everyone from leaving. So they couldn't Mm -hmm. get into Egypt. They couldn't get into the West Bank for treatment. So there's tons of amputees. And then and then we're talking about who have they been killing? Not just middle-aged men, you know, because everyone that's killed in a drone strike, the U.S. government says is like a combatant. That's a middle-aged male. No, mm-hmm. not just middle-aged men. We're talking about dozens of children, mm-hmm. dozens of children, medics. I heard some guy on Democracy Now! who was there as a medic, and he said that they were all hiding behind like a first aid booth. And the second that they would like peer over and like see us, like the bullets would just start whizzing toward them. Jesus. Like they were like all hiding, like trying to help the injured. And mm-hmm. they were literally targeting them, like directly targeting the medics. And one of his friends died in front of him. Like they were using, they were out of tourniquets. Like they ran, ran out of all of this. But he was just so shocked. He was like, they were trying to kill us. They were uh-huh. trying to kill all of the medics on purpose. Like yeah. wrap your mind around that. Like wrap your mind around how I'd say that. And then you yeah. have the journalists, marked press. We already know what they say about, you know, Al-Aqsa, the Al-Sharok Tower. Yeah, it's all a Hamas target. Got it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, apparently, if even if you're marked press, 
you are just totally um, up for grabs for being executed because that's what happened to several, at least two journalists, clearly marked press, Yasser Murtaja and Ahmed Abu Hussein wow. um, killed. And then you look at Rajan. Uh, oh, by the way, 12 journalists um, were injured. 18 have been killed since 1992 in Gaza alone. Journalists, um, because they're all considered Hamas. So I guess it doesn't matter. Um, and then, you know, it's just crazy. And then Razan al Najjar, I'll wrap up the segment with her, which is that, um, you know, she's, she's a 21-year-old medic. She was assassinated by Israeli snipers. She was running with her hands up, wearing a white medic uniform, and she was shot in the back 100 yards away. And I think that was on purpose because she was actually being interviewed. She was the perfect representation to like, like totally blow apart that entire narrative that like, you know, everyone's terrorists and they're like, they hate women. It's like, no, she was a leader. Mm -hmm. She was a feminist mm -hmm. and she was a hero mm -hmm. and she's fucking dead. And even a billboard honoring her in Boston was taken down because it was so offensive. Um, it's just, it just said honor like Palestinian heroes who, you know, risk their life or something. And they forced it to take it down. It's like, OK, well, fuck? I guess we can't even honor this woman who who risked her life like she sacrificed herself to save other people. And she uh -huh. was gunned down in cold blood by Israeli snipers. And you can't even fucking honor her. Yeah. Sick fucks. And all these settle, all these fucking snipers are getting authorizations from generals like every kill. That's what people don't realize. They're like, oh, OK, well, they're not meaning to kill people. They are. <laughs> they have multiple rounds of authorization in like their their headsets and shit. And they're getting confirmations from generals. Yeah. Take the shot. Uh -huh. They know who they're killing. They have a wide view of these protests and they're looking through a lens of a of a sniper scope and they're pulling the goddamn triggers. Every shot is purposeful. Right. They're not just indiscriminately sniping. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. So we hired these people to show us not not only show us the horrors and atrocities that is that are happening now the 38th week in a row that everyone's just forgotten about that there's an ongoing massacre happening, mm -hmm. but also to show like what life is like in Gaza. Like we we had them film, you know, what what is it really like? What are the hardships that you guys are incurring? And not only that, um but also what is Palestinian culture love? You know, like the things that they were telling us, they want us to know that they like have art and music and like mm -hmm. they love people. And <laughs> again, mm -hmm. like life is rich and, and culture is rich and they want us to like, they want to share that with us. And they were like, we mm -hmm. don't want to be defined as just like the people who keep getting fucking killed. Yeah. That is so goddamn heartbreaking. Like that is so sad. Um, do you sick, have any kind of timeline? Like, do you know when this, your documentary is going to be coming out? Um, cause I know, yeah, the mainstream media is not really covering this anymore at all. So I think it's really important that this does come out. So I'm looking forward to looking totally. to watching it, even though it's going to be heartbreaking, but yeah. Do you know, uh, when you think you'll be putting that out? Well, right when we get back from Iran, we're gonna we're gonna get out the Great March of Return stuff. So that kind of like put a stint in it, just because we got this. We're going with Code Pink, which is gonna be fun. Um, so it kind of like we had no choice in like when to go, and plus you have to get invited by the government and go with like a delegation. So we're putting that on the back burner just for a month. Yeah. So we're getting this done, and we're working on it still. But like it should be it should be out ready to go February, and we're really excited about it. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Um, yeah. Man, if I can stomach it, man, it's like even hearing know, about it. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a lot. So, I mean, this is 
clearly all a flagrant violation of international law, and yet nothing mm-hmm. is really being done like on an international stage. So uh, I'm wondering if you can lay out the geopolitics of all this and how this how the geopolitics have contributed to this global inertia, basically in doing a damn thing, because um, America has played a major role in this and has for some time, despite changing administrations. I know now mm-hmm. Jared Kushner is particularly close with Netanyahu. So uh, what are the connections that are keeping this all afloat and what has to change to change the tide? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's 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 honestly, and this is like hard, I think, for people to grasp because then, then you get into like a lot of territory where people are like, why is Israel so powerful? Israel controls the US. And oh, yeah. I think it's the other way around. I think that it's like, I think that it's like, you know, Israel is a garrison state and a military outpost for the U.S. to maintain a hub of control. And then you could say the Mm -hmm. same about Saudi Arabia. Like we launch a lot of wars from Saudi Arabia. We use it as a staging ground for our military. Like that's very simple. I do think it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Like a lot of people are like, you know, they have to like literally pledge allegiance to Israel. Like if you want to be a congressman like that, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a de facto, like become a de facto state. Like it is the 51st state of the nation. Um, And it it is very disturbing because it's like, why is it so powerful? But I think that it's because it is protected by the US empire. It's like, you could say the same thing about Saudi Arabia, like Saudi Arabia can get away with even dismembering an establishment journalist in a protected consulate and like still continue genocide in Yemen, like still do all of these things because it has this undying relationship with the US empire. So you mentioned, regardless of administration, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. This has been going on since, you know, a tale as old as time, since Israel was founded, actually, not that long ago, just 60 years ago. Um, Since that that happened, I mean, administrations have come and gone, and it's always been the kind of undying notion that Israel can do no wrong, that it's the beacon of democracy, and that we need to protect it at all costs. Mm -hmm. And the Palestinian current, as kind of like this war on terror, has always been a part of that propaganda, I mean, going back to 9-11, right after 9-11 happened, we saw footage of, oddly enough, Palestinians mm-hmm. like in the street. And it was like a handful of them. But that became the talking point. Like Palestinians are dancing in the street. We should invade Palestine. And it just became conflated with like it's always been like the crux of like the war on terror has always been kind of throwing Palestinians under the bus and using their plight as a justification to expand the U.S. empire. And Israel... You know, everyone does try to punish Israel and it's and the tide is turning. Like you see 10 years ago, polls were flipped on its head. You mm-hmm. know, 10 years ago, people were there was a mantra like I'm progressive except for Palestine. Like that was mm-hmm. a thing. Like you could be a liberal, you could be a progressive, but you were really bad on Palestine. But now you actually can't be a progressive unless you support the freedom of Palestine mm-hmm. and, a, a you know, a one state kind of solution where and we can get into what that means. But Yeah, I think that the tide has flipped so much because Israel has lost control of the narrative because all it really had was manipulating the public perception about what the crisis and conflict is. And Mm -hmm. once they lost control and once social media became, you know, had was standing on its own legs and showing the horrors and atrocity, I mean, you can show as many cartoon images like Netanyahu likes to bust out of like people standing on a hill with like mus- missiles underneath. But it's like that that doesn't resonate with people as much as like seeing dead kids on a fucking beach being mm-hmm. blown up by a missile. So once those images started to get out, 
because the corporate media no longer had a stranglehold on it, then people started to really be like, wait a minute, like this is not what I thought it was at all. Mm -hmm. And so you see the international community constantly trying to punish Israel, constantly trying to do all these resolutions to admonish Israel at the very least. I mean, especially with the Great March of Return. And you see every single time the U.S. has blocked it. The U.S. has blocked it. And Nikki Haley was probably the most rabid, disgusting uh, Zionist little lapdog neocon <laughs> who was running around literally on her hands and knees begging <laughs> countries to vote for her ridiculous um, resolution trying to blame Hamas mm-hmm. for their own massacre. So I think that I think that um, you know, of course, you can you can talk about how powerful the lobby is, but I think the lobby is as powerful as it is. Because it has the U.S. empire's backing and it kind of has this institutional backing and like body that keeps getting emboldened, that keeps getting strengthened financially and politically. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like it makes sense that the lobby is like one of the strongest lobbies because we've like given it that power and it's like totally backed by the U.S. empire. So I just and, and I think that with Trump's new rhetoric you know, talking about killing, literally like saying, like, yeah, just fucking use Israel's tactics and kill migrants who are throwing rocks at the border. Right. I think that this is like a, a total green light in you uh, to, to Netanyahu and the Likudniks to be like, do whatever the hell you want. Like, mm-hmm. it, and we see that. I mean, he's tried to erase Palestinian refugees. He defunded UNRWA, um, the Great March of Return, the moving the embassy, Jared Kushner. You mentioned Jared Kushner. Mm-hmm. Jared Kushner and David Friedman by the way, these two like liaisons who Trump has appointed to quote unquote solve the Palestinian crisis. Remember the, during the campaign trail, he was like, I'm going to make a good deal. He's like, you know what? I might actually solve the crisis. You're like, wow, really? And yeah. then he immediately does all this crazy stuff, gives a green light. The, the, the mayor of Jerusalem is like, oh, great. He's like, once Trump got in, he's like, we just totally like um, initiated a million new settlements. Like the green light is totally on. And David Freeman and Jared Kushner are both invested in settlements, personally invested in the settlement process. Jared Kushner's family foundation is a settlement beneficiary. Jesus. Uh, and then he he's close friends with Netanyahu. He's so close friends with Netanyahu that even one of during the first press conferences of Netanyahu and Trump, Netanyahu actually stops and he's like, hello, Jared. He's like, good to see <laughs> you again. You're like, are you guys like, like you just boys, dude. He's like, Hey dude, what up? Good to see yeah. you. I haven't seen you since this morning when I woke up in your <laughs> fucking guest room because he stays in Jared Kushner's guest house in Manhattan Damn. when he goes there. So that's how tight these people are. Yeah. Yeah. But that's how they get away with it, dude. That's how they get away with it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point you made about the lobby, because my next question was about uh, if you could talk to the extent of the Israel lobby. But yeah, I mean, of course, this goes back to just American interests, like, uh, of course, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I mean, at the wall, like Trump's wall on the southern border, he said he was inspired by Netanyahu. And uh, even police in the US chain with the IDF forces. So there's just so much connection there. I feel like they're both kind of (laughs) just, yeah, giving the green light to the other. other. Yeah, totally. totally. Right. Um, so I guess, did you have any more to say about the the Israel lobby and the pro-Zionist propaganda? Um, I mean, the only other thing that I'll say about the tide turning is it is really amazing that you have actually two congresswomen now who are advocating openly for BDS. Mm-hmm. So I think it, you know, it really seems like this is all futile. Israel's never going to like go down and, you know, we're apartheid's never going to fall and they keep painting everything as anti-Semitic and yeah, the manipulative tactics of projecting what you're doing right on a mm-hmm. population as they're doing it to you. And like, it just no longer works mm-hmm. and um, it's faltering. 
and it's flailing. And that's why you see it actually becoming more fascistic because Mm -hmm. they know that they're fucking losing and all they have is what people think. And so the BDS advocates in Congress is like hugely symbolic. And we're seeing so many BDS victories around the world that like it really, really inspires me and gives me hope and optimism and Mm -hmm. um, the resilience of the Palestinians. It just like speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of heartened, I guess, in uh, Canada. I know that, um, you know, some of my friends are saying that the younger generation of Jewish people in Canada and North America are really not buying the like Zionist lines anymore, right? So the tide is mm-hmm. changing that way. But um, unfortunately, a lot of, I guess, the old guard still is in charge of, you know, the Jewish organizations over here. Uh, but really quickly on, on yeah. that point, you mm-hmm. mentioned when we were when you were introing about um, about the whitewashing and like the pink washing of Israeli apartheid. Yeah. And one really quick thing, if people watch that Israeli, the, the lobby, right, that was just like uncovered, Al Jazeera was blocked from showing or whatever. So it got out. But mm-hmm. one part of the expose on the Israeli lobby in the US is the amount of front groups and shell organizations that the Israeli consulate embassy and lobby and state will create to keep up the appearances that they're like our progressives at the forefront of this. It's very surreal. So you have like one example that came out of this movie was they start Facebook pages. Like a lot of these people, you know, and we know that there's like Hasbro operations. They give hot air balloon rides to whoever can edit the most Wikipedia entries. There's like (laughs) entire Hasbro like colleges, like literally to edit and like curate the narrative online about, you know, the press and the presser. Right. But this, the, one of the Facebook pages was, a progressive Facebook page with like nearly a million followers called something very innocuous and they would sprinkle in like pro-Israel stuff like every week or so. Like, mm-hmm. like so just so just like deep embedded in your psyche that you just think like, you know, you just you step away from that never questioning like, wait, this could be actually like a front group from the actual Israeli state, mm-hmm. like a long con to just make progressives follow this and like talk about war, talk about this, but then you'll just like have pro-Israel propaganda sprinkled in. And um, Mm -hmm. another thing, of course, you know, the lobby just like just uh, went over uh, all of those groups and how insidious it is and how much they go to smear and delegitimize people who are actually advocating Palestinian liberation. And um, it's quite telling. And I, I encourage everyone to check it out because it really shows you the lengths Mm-hmm. Um, that that the state is going. I mean, again, with our tax dollars, <laughs> like right, yeah, it's crazy. But but it's the Russians that we should really be worried about <laughs> trolling us online. Totally, <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, so I just wanted to ask this question because uh, what I find interesting is that you know many alt right people will be pro Zionist but anti Semitic, which is obviously mm-hmm. uh, you know. <laughs> completely contradictory. Um, But what I find even more interesting is that Netanyahu's son, clearly pro-Zionist, has also shared anti-Semitic memes and has condemned Black Lives Matter and Antifa after Charlottesville. So just wondering what do you make of these kinds of twisted contradictions? It's fascinating. Um, I mean, (laughs) first of all, first of all, this guy's a fascist. He's like a privileged fascist, you know, like Netanyahu's son, I think his name is Yar. He's a total little fucking fuck boy, total little <laughs> privileged little piece of shit. Um, I think he just said the other day, like, all Muslims need to leave the state of Israel. Bah, bah, bah. Like, wow. all right, dude. Um, really fucking great. 
great like rhetoric to be mm-hmm. putting out there. So, I mean, look, you just look at what Richard Spencer says. We all know who Richard Spencer is. He's praised Israel several times as a model for the Aryan homeland that he wants to create in the U.S. I mean, he calls it the most revolutionary ethno state and one that he turns to for guidance. So you see a crossover here where actually anti-Semitism comes secondary to the ethno-supremacist mm-hmm. notion of the settler colonial state of Israel. So, you know, you look at... um For example, like how Israelis treat actual Africans, (laughs) like um, Mm -hmm. migrants um, who are who go there actually trying to flee genocide from Africa Mm -hmm. Um, and Eritrea and a lot of Darfur, like a lot of these other people who are who are still fleeing genocide and they get trapped in 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 a prison in the desert and actually tried to either kicked out. Or um, just treated like shit. I mean, people hate them. We went to like, there was like multiple like anti-refugee protests and rallies and movements to try to get them out of the country. Because again, we're talking about a, not only a Jewish majority, but a Jewish white majority. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really what this is about. And, you know, you know, the US far right obviously exhibits anti-Semitism. That's like totally um, apparent, right? But Spencer, Mm -hmm. like other contemporary Nazis, also has been like effusely positive about Israel and Zionism because they see that Zionism is really what they want. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so actually, yeah, anti-Semitism doesn't seem to be like really a priority only when it's being used to demonize Palestinian and pro-Palestinian activists. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm, what's really fascinating is that, you know, even after Charlottesville and shit, like I I, I I saw this great Twitter thread of like a woman who was like in Jewish Voices for Peace or something. And she's like, why is it that a lot of these organizations that are affiliated with the Israeli government don't even like bother condemning like the rise of neo-Nazism or anti-Semitism? Like where mm-hmm. where are you on Charlottesville? Where are you in like the rise of anti or not neo-Nazism across Europe? Like that's scary as shit. Right. And instead they're they're busy, very busy condemning BDS as anti-Semitic mm-hmm. and stimming all the efforts and criminalizing BDS across the world, I find that very strange. And so even though neo-Nazis are anti-Semitic, they share that common bond with Israelis in terms of their vehement hatred for Muslims, migrants, and immigrants. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, it's, but it's just so much, it's just so wild when you have um, Israelis sharing the anti-Semitic memes and content, right? Because it's like, yeah, fine, totally. I understand, like Richard Richard Spencer, but then uh, for you know Netanyahu's son to be sharing things about George Soros and you know the leftists and all of that, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it supersedes, I, I feel like it supersedes it. Yeah, no, they they love Trump. Right. They lo- Dan Cohen went and like right. interviewed a bunch of uh, people in Jerusalem, and they were just like, we love Trump. Like Trump is exactly what we want, and it's like so. I think. That like anti, uh-huh. I think that they just like love that that Trump like mindset, and it's like the anti-Semitism is like ah, eh. mm-hmm. I mean it's wild, it's totally wild, and I actually can't wrap my brain around it fully. <laughs> Still, right? <laughs> I feel like they kind of know. I feel like they're doing whatever they can to just align themselves with other dominant right right wing powers who will support and fund their occupation. So if that means aligning themselves with like the extreme right wing that is also potentially anti-Semitic, like that's what they'll do, you know? Um, Fascinating. You're right. Yeah. I just wanted to bring this up before uh, mm-hmm. we get to the last couple of questions because I, again, I just listened to your most recent Media Roots 
podcast, which everyone should check out. Um, but you brought up something that I totally forgot about that had disturbed me mm-hmm. so greatly because I used to be a big fan of Pharrell. Um, but mm-hmm. <laughs> he and Ashton Kutcher and celebrities in North America were actually taking it upon themselves to fundraise for the IDF and f- like held a fundraiser for six, like raised $60 million. <laughs> I couldn't believe this. I could not believe this. I was so upset. I was like, Pharrell, what? I thought you were cool. Like, just, I don't, I cannot wrap my brain around that at all. Dude, tell me about it. I I, I thought that we were getting somewhere. It's like Natalie Portman even had to denounce Israel. She just called it racist. She just called their nation state law. She's like, yeah, this is fucking racist. It's like, damn, dude. Natalie Portman was like your liaison. Like, you guys were like, like pulling out all the fucking you were pulling her out for everything so once she like dropped off i was like okay this is great lana del rey dropped off at the meteor festival i was like this is amazing like Uh bds is so effective like we're really and even like congress people like for for example i feel like are really not gleefully endorsing like the atrocities and massacres like they used to Mm -hmm. because i feel like it's so taboo and so like gross that's why this startled me so much. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a right. minute. Like we're talking about like after Ahed Tamimi, after the Great March of Return, that 60 people were killed in one day, 220 people to this day. Like after all of that, you fundraise, like not even like an Israel gala. Right. Like that would I would, would even, even understood. Like it was a fundraiser for a genocidal apartheid military. Right. Like, I can't even, I don't even know what to say. I seriously don't even know what to say about it. It is stunning. Me neither. I can't even fathom it. I can't fathom doing it. All I could encourage people to do is like troll the shit out of these people because they're all dead to me. Right. I need to boycott everything they do because apparently they don't fucking get it. They don't get what's going on. Yeah. And <laughs> unless they do and they actually want to kill people. I mean, what do you think? I have no idea. I mean, they like, actually want to kill Palestinians. I don't know. Like, I'm like, uh, Pharrell, like, what is his religious background? Like, why do you care so much about raising money for a foreign military? That should be illegal. Occupy- I don't understand it at all. <laughs> it should um, seriously be illegal. It's like, why are we fundraising for a foreign army? And it's also just like, why do Americans join a foreign army? Like, that's fucking weird, man. Like, someone's uh-huh. sitting in there, you know, in, in some town in Montana, and they're like, I'm bored. I'm going to go move on top of an Arab village and kill a bunch of fucking Arabs. Like, what the hell? How is this a thing? How is this a mm-hmm. thing? I mean, it just kills me that it's like, here we are. There's like the longest standing, like, colonial occupation that is ongoing, like, violently expelling people, like, every day. And it's been like a slow genocide for 60 years. And we're just like sitting mm-hmm. back being like, oh, well. And Americans are like, cool. Come to Israel. Come to Israel. Everyone can just come to Israel. Just stake out your land. It's like, how is this happening? It's crazy. Well, I mean, again, like our colonial occupations are even longer, right? Right. And like they're ongoing. Like, you know, indigenous nations are still being killed. They can't live. They Like in many places in Canada, they cannot make their livelihoods. But so it's like, I'm not really surprised that we're not super, you know, we don't care that much what's going on. But uh, but I mean, come on. I, yeah, this is just so brutal. It's really in your face with all of this, you know. But anyway, so in terms of Israel, I know that you found that leftists within Israel have to keep a very low profile. Uh, that when you heard, you know, people actually chanting death to leftists, death to the videographers, capturing what's going on. Um, in your last episode, you had said that 63% of Israeli Israelis polled say that they actually want to see an escalation of the bombing in Gaza. 
Gaza, and 83% said that they support the open fire policy against unarmed protesters at the border. So like shoot to kill. Um, So that's all fucking horrifying, obviously. So uh, I'm wondering what you've seen going on, I guess, in a a positive sense. So what's going on on the ground in terms Mm. of Jewish-Palestinian solidarity and organizing? Uh, Are there any organizations doing good work? Are dissident voices in Israel being heard? Uh, What's your take on that? Right. So I struggled with this a lot, and I think a lot of progressives struggle with this a lot because it's very, it's really hard, again, to wrap your mind around the fact that there isn't like a possibility of what we were raised into thinking that there was this uh-huh. kind of two-state fantasy. Um, and it really, really, really took me going and traveling throughout the West Bank and seeing how there is no feasibility for a two-state solution because this the, the land that was put aside for the West Bank back when it was partitioned is gone. Like there is no land. So unless mm-hmm. you're talking about forcibly removing all the settlements, like there's no way that there can be a Palestinian state. And it mm-hmm. took me a really long time to grasp that. Because you sound like you're actually like when you say you want a one state solution, people are like, well, what does that mean for the Jews? It's like it means nothing. It means everyone just exists. Everyone mm-hmm. just like co like you can coexist peacefully. Mm-hmm. Like that's what it means. It means dissolving the apartheid state, d- like mm-hmm. ending the occupation, ending the siege. And like, yeah, it might be tough to to adjust, but like that's what needs to happen. We need a democracy with full rights. And it doesn't mean expelling anyone. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't. So that it. It really, really was hard for me to understand that until I saw the West Bank for my own eyes. And I mean, honestly, you could really just look at the map and see the the dots of like where the land is left. It's like, how would that even look like? What would you put bridges in between like the land? It's like tunnels or bridges <laughs> going from one spot of land to another speck like miles away. It's like, that makes no sense. Uh-huh. So what I realized, and, it's, and speaking to a lot of um, Israelis, and you can see my man on the streets there. And I did man on the streets with Palestinians as well, mm-hmm. spoke to a lot of Palestinians. And I never really heard remotely similar rhetoric from Palestinians to Israelis. And I know that that's a trope also that you're like, oh, that you know, they hate each other and they want to kill each other. I know there's a different mentality from the actual colonizers and from the settler mm-hmm. colonialists who are the occupiers and the brutalizers and like the supreme like the supremacists, right? And there's a different mindset with the people who are under the boot of these people. And a lot of Palestinians, even though they've experienced like such trauma and horror beyond comprehension, a lot of them were just like, I, we just want to coexist. Um, this one guy who was like seeing settlers encroaching on his land, he was just like, I, he was like, we want to coexist with them. We just don't want them to take our land. Like, why are they taking it from us? Just move mm-hmm. like a mile away. Cause there's a ton of like there's a ton of land like that's what you realize when Mm -hmm. you're driving through israel like there is a ton of land they don't want that land they want the land that the arabs are like already living on (laughs) so like they want to take the villages take the homes so anyway i um it's very hard to wrap your mind around the one state solution democratic state for all so and honestly the truth is that there are very few anti-zionist leftists in israel there are a lot of liberal Zionists in Israel. So there are a lot of liberals and there are a lot of quote unquote progressives. Um, But it's a lot to, uh, for Israelis, I'm imagining it's a lot to wrap your mind around like you want to abolish the notion of a Jewish only state, you know, of Mm. Israel that you were like indoctrinated into growing up 
in this apartheid regime, kind of like racist indoctrination. You're all forced to go to the military, so you're already like militarized. And it's really, really, really rare for an Israeli-born person to break out of that and be like, you know what? I'm actually, this is crazy. Um, I don't agree with this. And and in fact, the people who do break out of that leave because a lot of Israelis have dual citizenship that's really easy to get passports. And a lot of them just leave the country because, you know, it, it's it's a really tough place to live. Um, and, and if you go around Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, or anywhere in, is, in Israel proper inside 48 is what they call it, um, it's the racism is very visceral and it's very like blatant and mm-hmm. uh, you see it just literally walking over. I mean, I, we traveled throughout the West bank for a month and we had no problems other than Israeli soldiers thinking that we were, you know, we were going to die on behalf of Israeli soldiers, but like we could have been settlers. We could have been Jewish. Like no one did anything. Else. No one said anything. Else. People were very kind. Kids ran up smiling, laughing. Mm-hmm. Um, some guy in a candy shop was like, I love Americans. I was like, why would you love us? We're literally like, I'm <laughs> we're funding your brutality. Like this is crazy, but they could separate our government from us. But it was a totally different story when we went into Jerusalem. And I mean, honestly, just I encourage your viewers to watch my interviews because people think that they were cherry picked, that we went into like the most racist quarter. I don't know what the racist quarter of Israel is. Like we were in a bustling mm-hmm. hub of like a shopping center that was actually called Tolerant Square. So yeah, um, I don't actually know how we could have cherry picked like who looks racist and who doesn't. We interviewed people from a, a wide array of walks of life, secular, religious, young, old, settler, American, Israeli born, like very like a multitude of different people. And a lot of them said blatantly, like terrifyingly genocidal rhetoric, um, bomb them, carpet bomb them. They need to leave. We need to expel them. One guy who said he was a leftist told me, he was like, the occupation needs to be more humane. The occupation needs to be more humane. And I was like, would you consider yourself a leftist? And he said, yes. And I said, is leftist a slur in Israeli society? And he said, yes. Hmm. And so that's, we need to like shift out of the framework of even like, you know, America, Canada, like I feel like our political spectrum is like so far to the right that it's like centrism is, you know, it's like right wing. There, Mm -hmm. being a leftist actually means that you don't want the, like the brutality of the occupation. Maybe you disagree with the siege on Gaza, but you don't want a one-state solution. You're not anti-Zionist. Mm-hmm. You know, you just want more humane conditions for Palestinians. So I think it's really important to understand that um, it's a very, very small contingent of people who are anti-Zionist. There are a huge amount of people who are working to better the conditions of Palestinians and working with human rights organizations to, you know, fix the like horrific things that are going on with the prison industry, all of that. But like you said, I mean, the polls reflect this too. Mm -hmm. The polls reflect this. 64% of Israelis wanted to escalate bombing in Gaza. I mean, who knows how many wanted to keep bombing and who knows how Mm -hmm. many wanted to just destroy Gaza. You know, like we don't know what the true number is of people who want to like completely annihilate Gaza. Then you had thousands protesting the end of the war. The end of like they protested the ceasefire. They actually protested the ceasefire. I really can't think of anywhere else in the world who like protests when the war ends. Eighty-three uh-huh. percent. I mean, this is just straight up fascism. Eighty-three percent support the open fire policy. I mean, how? What else can you call that other than fascism? When you're a supporting shooting to kill unarmed protesters. I mean, uh-huh. that is that that's really really uh, genocidal bloodlust is the norm. It is a racist society, and I. that's why there really is no hope from within. Because even though, sure, there are potentially 
uh, hundreds of thousands of very progressive liberal Zionists who are working to better the lives of Palestinians. That does not change the fact that there are not enough good Israelis, good anti-Zionist Israelis who are willing to push the demands of the oppressed Palestinians to abolish apartheid, to actually mm. end the occupation. Um, and mm. that's why BDS is so, so important. Because I, I think a really important point to make also is that there used to be an Israeli left in politics. Mm. Um, and it was more an accepted thing. This is when the two-state solution was kind of like an, a feasible goal. Um, mm -hmm. That political current is dead and gone. And it's been abandoned for decades there. For some reason, Americans are a little bit like like slower to catch up to how that actually isn't feasible because they've kept up the facade for so long and they want to keep that language going. And if you mm -hmm. watch that Al Jazeera, the lobby documentary, you see that they even create front groups to advocate a two-state solution, even though that literally doesn't mean anything. And they know that it's a farce too. They just keep mm -hmm. it up. Um, and you know, it's just it's just really sad. I mean, white people in South Africa did not just wake up during apartheid and just all of a sudden realize like, hey, we're all racist. We need to like make sure that we're not racist. No, it really takes a lot of international pressure for the system to collapse. And mm. that's why we have to listen to Palestinians. You're talking about now what groups are on the ground. Um, mm -hmm. You have Bet Salem. Beth Salem is an amazing human rights organization. You have, um, you know, that's also a target. Uh, kill the videographers. As you mentioned, there was a chant when Elor Azaria, mm -hmm. the guy who extrajudicially assassinated a Palestinian on the ground, it's on video, very horrific uh, execution. He was just given a slap on the wrist and there was actually mass rallies of tens of thousands of people protesting him getting a slap on the wrist. Which ended up just him being put on house arrest. Like that, that was like kind of the, the bloodlust that like brought out masses in the street to protest the fact that he was even getting punished. So that's where Dan and Max and um, David Sheen, who's a very good uh, anti Zionist Israeli born activist who's there exposing a lot of this crazy stuff there, God bless him. Um, mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I don't know how he does it. I um, mean, he's married to an African woman there. So he says he's constantly just he constantly experiences how racist it is, obviously, but it must be very mm -hmm. difficult to raise a, a family there that's um, biracial. But he's, they heard them saying, death to the videographers, death to the others. They were talking about Beth Salem, who films these human rights abuses, because to them, there's a saying within Israeli society, there's a saying that you can't like fully have the final solution of ethnically cleansing all the indigenous inhabitants of Palestine and getting rid of all the Palestinians without getting rid of the leftist Israelis first. Wow. Because to them, they say you are preventing us from committing what we want is like expelling everyone. Like the mm. leftist Israelis that are the good Israelis there that are trying to advocate for peace and, and human rights and justice, they are seen as actually the ultimate enemies from Israeli societies and the fascists there. And you see this, you know, they they actually reenact the Nakba in a disgusting way um, and like oh march through the like Muslim quarter of Jerusalem every year. Yeah, a lot of these settlers do and like marching around. And you see who is protesting that. And it's not that many people. I mean, it's probably maybe a hundred at its most that I've seen. I mean, that that's what mm -hmm. we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about in terms of the protests um, on on the good side, um, mm -hmm. and then and I'll just and I'll just end with this, which is that we need to listen to Palestinians, um, Adamir mm -hmm. Prison Support Network on the ground, and uh, you know just Palestinians in general. They are a unified movement. Instead of like pointing to groups, organizations, we need to look at Palestinians as a whole because they have unified themselves and formulated the BDS 
movement as their symbol for us to now take and utilize. So it's like they have unified, they have put this goal forward, and it's the same core demands as BDS. Um, and that mm-hmm. that's who we need to be listening to, and that's what we need to be fighting for. And that's, of course, an end to occupation, an end to the siege, and a right to return for the hundreds of thousands of refugees who were you know, violently expelled from their land. And we just mm-hmm. have to keep listening to Palestinians and, and, and having them guide us instead of us imposing what we think they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, to finish off, I guess that's kind of a good lead into this, you know, where where do people go from here? Um, as you said, a two-state solution is a really a non-starter at this point. So mm-hmm. um, how can how can people get active to fight for Palestinian rights like within and beyond uh, BDS? Sure. I mean, New York University just passed a resolution. Uh, divestment campaigns are probably the best, uh, most important thing that we can be doing to generate BDS uh, successes. It's Uh huge and it's working. I mean, I just saw two uh, Northeast uh, police departments were actually stopped their trips to Israel this year. I mean, that's saying a lot, but like that's how much public pressure existed within these cities. And so there are resolutions happening all across the country. There are divestment efforts happening all across the country. There are BDS groups and chapters sprouting up at colleges. And that's where we need to focus our efforts. Get in, Uh link up with Palestinians in your city, um, link up with organizations that are advocating this. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. What you can do, be an individual activist, wear a shirt, wear a button, start the conversation to your friends, colleagues, and family members, start to kind of um, deconstruct the narratives that we've been fed by the corporate media, start to politically educate people about what the situation is, and also do activism on your own. I mean, you have a BDS app, under Bicot that you can download on your, your smartphone. And you could also just like try to kind of um, put your own thoughts out there online. I mean, write editorials, uh, write comments, uh, derail threads that are going in the wrong direction and, and try to correct kind of the record here. So there's a lot you mm-hmm. can do individually and with groups to fulfill this. And I think it's really really um, on the horizon now. And I really don't say that lightly. And this is coming off of talking to experts and people who have been fighting for their entire lives, that they see hope. They really do. Um, because, mm-hmm. And that's why I fight. And that's why I do what I do. Because I see the US empire as the linchpin for not only mm-hmm. you know Palestinian liberation, of course, Saudi Arabia and so many other struggles around the world that could collapse and become an amazing, you know, could become completely liberated if we just focus on ending the U.S. empire with its 800 plus bases around the world. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, 70% of countries have special operations. What is this doing? An untold damage to the environment, to the social construct of these places. So that's why we all have to focus on really eliminating, abolishing this this massive military machine, because that's Mm -hmm. when we can really see the liberation of Palestine once and for all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's very apt that the US military or the US is kind of this linchpin to all of these other struggles. Because yeah, I mean, if, if we kind of pull back the curtain on one, then it'll be easier to just keep pulling it back, pulling it back, pulling it back. And if people aren't going to support this brutal occupation, then why would they support, you know, Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen? Why would they support any anything else that the US is doing abroad? Exactly. Right? 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, amazing. Thank you for all of your insight on this and also for just your incredibly important work that unfortunately not many journalists are doing whatsoever. Before we go, would you like to let listeners know about where they can find you or if there's anything you have coming up, you want to publicize anything like that? Yeah, sure. I just wanted to say that, you know, with Mark Lamont Hill, I think that was his name, the guy who just got fired um, on CNN. I mean, this really shows you that even still, even still, the tide's turning, the world is watching, but it's still forbidden to work in U.S. corporate media if you do not personally endorse the apartheid regime and brutal occupation of Israel or that Israel mm-hmm. is perpetuating. And that is very, very disturbing to me um, that mm-hmm. this guy was fired for simply giving a speech like not even on air. And that just shows you where we're at and and the need for us to act on our own because, you know, it's not going to happen from the top down and the media is not just going to wake up one day and be like, we're going to start reporting on this fairly. Like it really is up to mm-hmm. us to to cause this shift in consciousness so we can actually try to get some movement generated. Um, people can find my work at theempirefiles.tv, just like the X-Files, but the Empire Files. Uh, and you can check it out on YouTube. Please subscribe and check out my podcast with my brother, Media Roots Radio. And it's available on iTunes and SoundCloud and pretty much every available podcast platform. So yeah. And please, if you want to continue seeing stuff like this, um, consider donating to Patreon or GoFundMe. And I really appreciate everything that you do. I'm super excited to now find out and listen to your uh, show as well. And yeah, I'm excited to get linked up and just keep up the badass work. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I'll put all of those links in the timeline so everyone can check out Abby's work. And yes, please donate. Um, So yeah, just once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Uh, Super stoked to do it. I hope to talk to you soon. Just before we go, I'd like to shout out the new patrons for this week. So thank you so much to Aubrey Zill, Josh R., and Eric Eisberg, who very generously increased their pledge. So if you would like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard, or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, which is veganvanguardpodcast.com. Or you can share this episode with friends or family, please do, (laughs) Uh, or leave us a review or rating on iTunes or whichever app you listen to us on. So thank you so much, everyone, and we'll see you in two weeks.